You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. First Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be this morning, and I would invite you once again to stand. And you say, but you don't know how hard it is to uh, stand up from my recliner or my couch over and over and over again. I understand. I do. Um, It's a little easier in here. You're sitting on a pew. uh, But uh, I think it's good for us to maintain some of these routines and these habits, not just for habit's sake, uh, but because God's Word still deserves it. And it's good for us to still go through some of the motions, um, not, again, for motions' sake, but because God deserves it. It's still His day whether we're sitting at home or sitting right here in the sanctuary. And uh, I think it's a good, good practice to be in. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll begin reading in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, it, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that, G- how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, or Peter, then of the twelve, and after that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep." After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. I want to preach this morning from Paul's own writing here. Um, I'm calling it from persecutor to apostle. And I want to see the difference that the resurrection really does make in each of our lives. I need the Lord's help. We're going to pray, and then you can be seated. Father, I come to you and humble myself before you. And I ask that you would help me to convey this message clearly, that I would do just some sort of justice to the text here in my own limited wisdom. And Lord, I'm asking that you would give us clarity, that you would speak to hearts through your word, and that you would help us to be grateful for the changes you've made in us. And then for those here this morning that have never received you as their Savior, those listening that don't have that settled. I pray that this truth, something that's said this morning, would cause them to reach out to you, to cry out to you for mercy, and that salvation would come to someone listening through the message of the gospel today. Father, I love you, and I am so thankful for the truth that you give us, and that you let us have the freedom uh, to open your word and to hear you speak to us through it. We pray that you bless the reading of your word and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. 
By the time we read here in 1 Corinthians 15, it has become apparent that the church is not doing very well. This group of believers in the Greek city of Corinth was facing difficulties, even though the great apostle Paul actually started this work uh, in a few years before this, they were now dealing with things like immorality among the church members. They were, they were dealing with strife and disunity, and they were dealing even with doctrinal disagreements. They, they need a recalibration. It becomes apparent. And as with, is most, with most cases, then, in most issues, their root problems could be traced back to something that they believed or something that they were doubting. Some in the church were casting doubt on whether or not there is a resurrection from the dead. They were questioning if people really live in eternity or if at death that's just the end. Look down in in verse 12, and I want to read there. It says in verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead. And I'm going to stop right there and just look at that phrase. One of the central doctrines of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If we don't have that truth, we don't have anything, really. And because, we'll take it further, and because he rose from the dead, it's a core teaching of our faith that the Bible, or from the Bible, that we also will rise from the dead. We believe, according to the Bible, that every person will live forever somewhere for eternity. The Bible teaches there are two categories of people, the righteous and the wicked. John 5, 29 says that all that are in the graves shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. You have a responsibility, folks, and if you're listening this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, then you are in one category and you don't want to be in that category. Every person is in one category or the other. You are either in the resurrection unto life or the resurrection unto damnation. You are either in the category of wicked or the category of righteous. And it all depends on what you have placed your faith in for eternity. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus told Martha in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have believed in his finished work on the cross, then you can know for sure today that you will be involved in the resurrection unto life. The resurrection would have been widely accepted in the early church. The resurrection overall. It would also have been widely accepted in the early church that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, rose from the dead on the third day. It would have been widely accepted. Uh, That would have been a core doctrine even in this day. Paul even says this fact was a major part of the preaching of the gospel uh, back up in the first part of this chapter. It's just understood that among the God, Jesus Christ followers in those days, that Christ died and he was buried And he rose again, and he was seen of over 500 witnesses. That's the gospel. The early churches believed it. It was common knowledge. And that was the core of their preaching. But something was missing in Corinth. Questions were being brought up, and doubt was being cast on the validity of the resurrection. Look again at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you... That there is no resurrection of the dead. I mean, he calls them out here. 
He just flat out asks them very plainly, very directly. If, he says, if one of the core elements of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came out of the grave on the third day and you claim to be Christians, how is it that some of you are saying that there's no resurrection of the dead? He said, help me understand this, Corinth. This doesn't make any sense. And we're, we're led to believe that either some didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, as it says at all, or they didn't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I mean, obviously, if they didn't believe that there was a resurrection of the dead, then that casts doubt on Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Either way, that presents big problems for their faith. So Paul then begins to lay out reasons that they should hope there's a resurrection, reasons that they should believe in the resurrection of the dead. And this is no small doctrine, and he makes a very good case here. He says, if there's no resurrection, then he uses points like, if if there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised from the dead, and if he's not raised from the dead, then you have empty faith. It's the kind of thing he says to them. He says, if there's no resurrection, he says, then we're all liars because we've all been witnessing to the fact that there is a resurrection that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. If he didn't, we're all liars. He uses the the reason as well. He says, if there's not a resurrection, then we're not saved from our sins because Christ's death is the only payment for our sins. And if he's still dead, it means that our sin defeated him, that he could not defeat sin or death. Listen, our salvation, folks, Our salvation, your salvation is dependent on the resurrection. Without it, we have no choice to be saved. We are wholly dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there is no resurrection, we will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell forever. Romans 10, 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that what? That God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It is a requirement for salvation to believe that Jesus Christ was not just some teacher, not just some good prophet, not just some good man, but he's the son of God and he rose again from the dead on the third day. And when Christ rose from the dead, he proved to have power over sin and death. And without that, folks, we have no hope. That's the kind of case Paul makes. He says, if there's no resurrection, then we have to assume our loved ones the ones that have gone before us, those that have fallen asleep in verse 18, we have to assume then that those that have fallen asleep in Christ are perished, that they're gone, they're no more. If you don't believe in resurrection, then say goodbye to your ancestors, say goodbye to your forefathers, say goodbye to your family and your father and your mothers and those that have died before you because if there's no resurrection, you have no hope to see them again someday. He goes on and says, if there's no resurrection then all of my suffering and all of my persecution and all the pain that I have endured uh, it has been for nothing and I have of all, of all men most miserable. Why would I choose this if there's no resurrection? And later on, down in verse 32, basically he says, if there's no resurrection, you might as well live like you want to. Go eat and drink and be merry and enjoy the day because tomorrow you die and it doesn't matter. Are you seeing how the resurrection makes a huge difference in our lives? It's no small doctrine. And then, and we're not going to get into the rest of all of this, but I just want to point out he shifts gears through the back half of the chapter, and instead of highlighting what it would be like if there is no resurrection, he starts talking about, well, what if Christ did rise? If he did rise, then I want you to think about everything that's true because of it. I want you to consider all that the resurrection provides. It takes us from corruption 
to incorruption. It takes us from dishonor to glory. It takes us from weakness to power. And it takes us from natural to spiritual. He, he goes on and he talks, 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 15 is a great passage, one of the classic and great passages of Scripture. But he says, we shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In that moment, in that twinkling of an eye, at that last trump sound, we'll be raised incorruptible. And then he ends the chapter from verse 55 down. I want to read this. Look at chapter 15, verse 55. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is, is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Wow, you talk about one of those victorious passages of Scripture. Paul's saying, if, if Christ is not alive, look at all that it affects. But if Christ is alive, look at all it affects. We have victory over death. That which we fear the most. And you talk about fear of death right now. In our culture, in our country, in our community. Everyone's afraid of what could happen next. And facing the coronavirus and and, and you see the numbers and they're just piling up and piling up. Well, we serve a risen Savior that proved that He has power even over what we fear the most, and that is death. Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. And that's chapter 15 in a nutshell. Now, we could spend weeks in chapter 15, and we could go verse by verse. There's so much more we should cover, but we don't have time. Just know this, the resurrection of the dead, specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it gives meaning to our Christian faith. It gives meaning to our lives. If we didn't have any other message to take away from this today, that's enough. Paul makes a clear case for the reason that the resurrection matters, the difference the resurrection makes. But I would submit to you that one of the greatest differences of the resurrection, one of the most tangible differences that the resurrection makes, and all of these are great. I mean, incorruptible to corruptible and, and natural to spiritual. And, you know, we'll all, we'll all be changed in a moment. I mean, that's all great. But if you think about it, that, all that stuff can be a little bit intangible. It's a little bit out in the future. And yes, it gives us hope. But it's not, um, that stuff is as important as it is. Uh, there's, there's even some even more tangible differences the resurrection makes. And one of those differences is seen in this text that but Paul doesn't even use it as a big reason. He doesn't even give it really explicitly. He more implies it. But I would submit to you that one of the greatest differences the resurrection makes is seen in Paul's life, not just in what he writes here in 15. It's clear, but it's not obvious. And that's the one that I want to focus on today. But to find it, we have to go back to the beginning of the chapter. He starts and he's preaching the, or telling them about the gospel and saying, hey, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye received, wherein ye stand, and by which also ye are saved. He's talking about the gospel and he's talking about how salvation comes through the gospel. And if we don't believe it, we're not saved. And then he explains what he means by the gospel. It says in verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So the first step of the gospel, the first 
truth of the gospel is the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross. On the cross, And when we sinned before God, a payment had to be made. And the problem was, though, we could not pay it. It was beyond us. It was far too expensive. Uh, figuratively speaking, it was far too much for us to pay. But Jesus Christ died in our place as a perfect substitute. He died to satisfy the payment that God required for our sin. That's the first truth of the gospel. Verse 4 gives the second truth in that he was buried. So we believe that he was buried. That means basically the reason that's important is because it it shows that Christ was truly dead. See, there are a lot of people out there today that say that Jesus Christ didn't really die. He swooned or he passed out because he was in so much pain or at the loss of his blood and he was just asleep or he was pretending. No, listen, he wasn't asleep. He wasn't in a trance. He was not pretending. He was truly dead. He was so dead that they buried him. That's an important part of the gospel. He says again in verse 4 that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The third step, the third truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ rose the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ himself had said in John 2, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and in three days I will raise it up. He rose and it fulfilled the prophecies just like he said he would. He proved the scriptures to be true. He rolled back the stone and he came out alive and no number of guards or soldiers and no government intervention could have kept him in that grave. He came out alive. That's the third point of the gospel. But there's another point of the gospel that many don't think about and that's in verses 5 and 6. It says, And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain or are still alive under this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. So he goes on and he starts listing all the people that saw Jesus alive after he rose from the dead. And he's saying it can be confirmed among many witnesses. Paul is not saying, he's not saying just one or two saw him. No, he's saying he was seen by all of these people. I mean, he rose, he was seen of Peter. And do do you think Peter knew what Christ looked like? Yes. He was with him every day for three and a half years. Then he was seen of the twelve. Do you think the apostles could have verified if they were seeing the actual Jesus? Yes. Then he was seen of above 500 brethren at one time. And he says, and of whom the greater part still remain. They're still alive. And that adds further evidence or further, further credibility to his argument. He's saying, you can ask people that are still alive. Go ask them. They're not dead. They're not passed off the scene. It's not like Paul is saying, oh, it, there were a lot of people that saw him, but, but you can't talk to any of them. No, he's saying, go ask them. They're still alive. They can verify this. Then he says, then he was seen of James. And this is James, the brother of Jesus. Do you think that Jesus' own brother knows what Jesus looks like? Absolutely. G- James was a good witness that Jesus is alive. And in this verse 8, this is an interesting fact here. Because he says... After that, he was seen of James. And last of all, verse 8, he was seen of me also. as of one born out of due time. And this is interesting because Jesus Christ died before Paul was saved. So how did Paul see him? Well, some say, well, maybe he saw Jesus alive during Jesus' earthly ministry. We don't have an evidence of that or proof of that. We don't know for sure. But if you know your Bible, you do know that Paul saw Jesus alive, the resurrected Savior. You say, well, how did he? Well, because in Acts 9, a man named Saul, same person here, named Paul here, he was going to the road, on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. Actually, let's turn over there. 
Keep your place in 1 Corinthians 15. But I want to turn over to Acts chapter 9 and, and look and see this account here so that we can see it for ourselves. Act 9. Acts chapter 9. So this is, this is the account of Paul seeing Jesus Christ alive. Look what it says in verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. So here's Saul. So this is the same person that's writing 1 Corinthians 15. They're calling him Saul here. He's called Paul later. It says he's breathing out threatenings and, he's, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And so it says he went unto the high priest. Here's why. Verse 2. And desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So here's the apostle Paul is the former, well, Paul to Paul later, he was called Saul at this time. He was breathing out threatenings and, and slaughtering of God's people, the Lord's disciples. So he goes to the high priest and he gets letters from him, getting permission to go to Damascus and saying, if he finds any that follow God in the synagogues, men or women, it doesn't matter, he can arrest them and bind them and take them back to Jerusalem to be tried. So it says in verse 3, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. So he's just walking to Damascus. He's going to do his duty as the persecutor of the early church. And a light shines from heaven in verse 4. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Would that stop you dead in your tracks? Absolutely it would. He hears this voice, and it's obviously a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul, you're a persecutor. Why are you doing this? In verse 5, he said, and he said, Saul says, Who art thou, Lord? I love that too, because it's like he answers his own question. He knows who's he, who he's talking to. Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What he's saying is, Jesus is saying, You're not just persecuting my people, you're persecuting me. And by the way, I like the way that he starts with, I am. I am Jesus. Almost as if to say, you thought I was dead, but I'm not. I'm still alive. And Saul, you're not just persecuting my people. You are persecuting me. You're trying to stop the gospel from being preached and spread. But you might as well stop fighting it because you cannot stop it. And as a matter of fact, Paul, Saul, I have a plan for you to, be, to help the cause. Saul then says, trembling, astonished, Lord, what will thou have me to do? So you can see that obviously the Lord has gotten his attention. And then the Lord says, Arise, go into the city. It shall be told thee what thou must do there. So he gets, he basically gets up. He obeys. At this point, though, he is blind. He can't see anything. The men around him are, are afraid, obviously, of what, because they heard a voice, but they didn't see a body. And so they lead blind Saul by the hand into Damascus to wait there until God sends something his way and tells him what to do next. And we know after that, a man named Ananias came along and helped him. But what's interesting is when you consider the fact that Saul was the persecutor. Saul was trying to stop the work of God. But go back to 1 Corinthians 15. 
So that's first, that's the proof that, that Saul or Paul saw Jesus Christ with his own eyes. He was a witness of the resurrected Savior. But second, I want to notice the difference that we see here. Verse 9 in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 says, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So now, Paul's considered an apostle, which only a select few people ever got to be called. It was a position of great honor, and he, and he qualified because he'd seen Jesus Christ with his own eyes, but he didn't feel worthy of the title. And I don't really blame him, because he says, because I persecuted the church of God, I persecuted Jesus Christ. He had actively sought their arrest. He had been present as the great disciple Stephen was stoned and killed there in the book of Acts. He was the enemy of God. He was the enemy of God's people. He hated Jesus Christ. He wanted the work of Christ's followers. Uh, He wanted them all dead and he wanted their work to stop. He did all he could to destroy the work of the gospel. He was a persecutor. But look at verse 10. It says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And what he's saying is, he's saying, the tone changes, and he's saying, yes, I was the persecutor, and yes, I don't deserve at all to be called an apostle, but by God's grace, look where I am now. And his grace hasn't been bestowed upon me in vain. As a matter of fact, I've done all I can to make a difference for him. I've gone from taking the lives of those preaching the gospel to giving my life to preaching the gospel. Before, he was Saul, hater of Christ, hater of his followers, murderer of the Lord's disciples. He was a persecutor. But what is he now? By the grace of God, he says, I am what I am now. What was he? Well, he's no longer a hater of Christ. He's no longer the persecutor of God's people. Now, he has the highest honor. He's called even an apostle. The power of God has taken this man uh, out of, out, that was out to destroy the work of Christ and turned him into a man that is out to do all he can to advance the work of Christ. The power of God has transformed the greatest enemy of Christ to one of the greatest servants for Christ. The power of God has taken this man from persecutor to apostle. And how did it happen, folks? What event took place in Saul slash Paul's life to take him from persecutor to apostle? What method did God use to change his life? Well, let me ask you this. Who showed up on the road to Damascus? The risen Savior, Jesus Christ. See, you began to realize why Paul was so passionate about the importance of the resurrection. Because listen, if Christ had never risen, Paul would have never had that encounter on the road to Damascus. His life would have never been changed. He would still be persecutor instead of Apostle Paul. And of all the reasons that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15 to drive home the importance of the resurrection, I don't believe that any is more important than the fact that the living Christ has the power to change a man from persecutor to apostle. The resurrected Christ can take a man that is, that is a bad and wicked and, and lowly and desperate and evil man, a murderer of God's people, and transform him into the apostle that made the biggest difference for God 
than anyone has ever made outside of Jesus Christ himself. Paul, because of the resurrected Savior, Paul went from persecutor to writer of almost 30% of the New Testament. He went from persecutor to, to impactor for the cause of Christ. He went from Christian chaser to soul chaser. He became a missionary whose influence uh, through, to the Gentiles in that part of the world has impacted literally millions upon millions over the years. If Christ is dead, folks, then all Paul ever would have been was persecutor. But because Christ is alive, now he's an apostle. Now he's a preacher. Friend, if you've ever wondered if the resurrection makes any difference in your life, think about the difference it made in Paul's. It transformed him from the lowest of low persecutor to apostle and preacher. And folks, there's someone watching today, there's someone listening today, and you have a label. There's a label on your life right now. And sure, it may not say persecutor, and it may not seem that bad, and it may not be that you've ever killed God's people for preaching the gospel, but it could say, your label might say regret. Your past is shameful, and you don't know how anybody could ever forgive you. Your label might say angry, and you have a problem controlling your anger, and it's cost you so many things in your life, from relationships to jobs, and you've lost hope that you'll ever conquer it. Your label might say bitter, and there are some things that have happened to you in your life, and I know they're probably terrible, and I know they're awful, and I know that I, I wish we could all go back and change them, but they happen to you, and you just cannot get over it, and you don't think you'll ever be able to forgive those that have harmed you. There's some, and your label is immoral. And you have a history of hidden sin that you hope stays hidden, but it haunts you every day, and you're not sure that you can even forgive yourself. We've got some, and your label would be drunkard, and you're dependent on some substance that plagues you, and it's caused you to lose so many things that you used to value. You have a label, and it feels like a giant neon sign with giant arrows are pointing at you all the time, and all you see is the label that's on you. And it may not be persecutor, but it's some other sin or some other regret of your past. But let me give you some hope today. There's a one-size-fits-all label that we all share. Sinner. And you say, oh, that's so encouraging. Well, it is hopeful for two reasons. And that we're all in the same position before God. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. And you may be better than the person next to you or this guy on this side or this lady over here, but compared to a righteous God, we are all guilty and sinful. And you might be thinking, well, there's no hope for me. If only you knew what I've done. If you knew my past, if you could see my history, if you could take a peek into my heart, you would realize there's no hope. But wait, let me remind you, persecutor to apostle. See, the second reason that the the label of sinner gives us hope is that God has proven it's a label he can change. See, the the persecutor killed Christians. He murdered the Lord's people. 
He actively sought to destroy the work of God and destroy the work of the gospel. And if the resurrected Savior can meet him on the road to Damascus and change where he was from persecutor to the apostle, then there's nothing that he can't change in your life. If if the resurrected Savior can take the persecutor to the apostle and and make him a missionary and a difference maker and a preacher, do you honestly think there's anything in your life that he can't change, that there's any label that's permanent in your life. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and conquered sin in the process means there's no label written on your life that he can't transform from something shameful to something meaningful. I mean, I think of our own church family. There's nothing special about us. I mean, we're just all sinners saved by grace. But there is story after story of person after person who has been transformed from something undesirable to something with value because they met the resurrected Savior. He's transformed some from angry to gentle. He has transformed or changed from, some from abuser to nurturer. He's transformed some from taker to giver. He's changed some of us from drug abuser to a godly spouse, to a godly father, to a godly mother. He's changed some in our own church family from bitter to peaceful. He's changed some even in our church family from all-in atheist to all-in disciple. And He's changed us all, transformed all of us from broken to forgiven. From sinner to child of God. Paul's label read persecutor until an encounter with the resurrected Christ changed it all. It transformed him into someone that could be called apostle. And if Christ can defeat death and sin, he can change us from what we are to what we're supposed to be. And not just on the outside. Folks, it's important that we understand there's a difference between reformation and transformation. Reformation is to improve on something that's already there to make it better. But God does more than reform. He's not just looking to to clean us up and give us some new clothes and change our behavior. No, He transforms. Romans 12, 2 says that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that word is from the same word from which we get metamorphosis. Like a caterpillar to a butterfly. He doesn't just kind of throw some wings or glue wings onto the caterpillar and change the color a little bit. No, the caterpillar goes in one way and comes out something different. God gives us a divine nature. He transforms us at salvation. And He changes us not just on the outside, but on a heart level. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And folks, today, if Jesus Christ has the power over death enough to change His own label... Jesus Christ's own label, from dead to alive, there's no label that you carry today that He can't change for you. If He can change from persecutor to apostle, He can transform your label. He can take you from anxious this morning to peaceful. He can take you from unfulfilled and restless to satisfied and content. He can take you from insecure to confident. 
He can change you from full of hatred to full of love. He can transform you from shy about the gospel to bold for Christ. He can take you from unworthy to serve to a major contributor in a church family. He can turn addicts into teachers. He can transform your home from one called broken to one called godly. And it's all possible because he's the great label changer. Okay, but what does that have to do with the Easter? Folks, if Jesus wasn't alive, we'd be stuck with the labels we have our whole lives. With no option to change them. We'd be sinner from the beginning to the end. Dead in sins, dead in sins. If he's not alive, we'd be doomed for hell. We'd be wicked and unhappy, but he's alive. But until you meet him, your label also won't change. And right now, you're stuck with the label you have until you meet the living Christ. And sure, you can engage in some level of self-improvement and you can try to change some behavior and change some habits. But if you want internal, heart-level transformation, only one has proven to have that kind of power. The one that conquered sin and death. The resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Somebody watching Somebody listening, somebody tuning in today needs a Damascus Road encounter like Saul. When you come to terms with who you really are as a sinner, what's your label? And then you acknowledge that you can't change that label on your own because he died to pay for your sins. And then receive his payment on the cross for your sins and then watch him transform you by his saving grace. Folks, he's the only one that can take us from shame, shameful to meaningful, from undesirable to valuable, from desperate to hopeful. When you meet the resurrected Christ, he can transform you from what you are to what you ought to be. And it's all possible because Jesus Christ is alive. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This morning, we're going to have a a verse of invitation here in just a moment. And as the piano will play in a moment, you have an opportunity to respond. But I want to ask you a question. This is different than the messages that we've had online so far to this point the last few weeks, and that this really does focus on salvation. I'm asking you this morning, if there's anyone out there listening or anyone in this room, and you would say, I don't know that my label has ever been changed. I I know that I'm a sinner. I know there are things in my life that shouldn't be there. And I know that I've broken God's law. But I don't know that I have ever placed my faith in Christ to let him change that label. Let me just remind you, you have to acknowledge your sin before him. You have to believe he is the only way to heaven. And then you have to accept his payment on the cross for your sin. And then believe that he rose from the dead proving his victory over sin and death. And today, someone watching, today, someone listening can receive Christ as their Savior. And when you leave the room you're in, you you came in with a label that says, sinner and dead in sin and no hope. And when you leave, your label says saved. It says forgiven. It says full of hope.
Today, you can have that. If you're meeting with someone and have a question, ask them. If you want to ask a question to somebody, you ask me, give a call to the church or get on the, on the website. And I'm encouraging you to reach out to us and let us know if you have some questions. Because Jesus Christ can change your label. But we also have some Christians listening today. Christians out there, maybe you have a label that, you're, that you feel stuck with because of decisions or choices you've made in your past. And your label just seems to follow you everywhere like a big neon sign. And no matter what you do, you can't seem to get over it. Or no matter what you do, you can't seem to conquer that sin. And you really want victory over it. The only place to find victory over sin and death was the original victor over sin and death, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. Stop trying to do it in your own strength. His resurrection power is available to you to have victory over the sin that you carry. Victory over the past that is haunting you. Victory over the hidden sins that nobody else knows about. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, can change your label too. I'm going to pray. And after I get done praying, the the instrument will play. and You have an opportunity to respond. I encourage you to do it this morning. Heavenly Father, Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for having your word so clearly laid out, Lord, that that you can change us from persecutor to apostle. I mean, you can change. If you can do that for Paul, you can do it for us. Whatever it is, whatever label we carry today, I'm praying that you would help us to trust you to change it for us. And that there would be folks that came in one way and they leave a different way. So God, work as you will. For those that aren't saved, I'm praying that you would speak to their hearts, help them to place their faith in Jesus Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.